Uh, Philippians 1 is our text here this morning. Philippians chapter 1, continuing our series on this theme of joy. We noted last week one of those points in the text where Paul says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. And uh, Paul was not writing from this blissful place. He was writing from prison and he was writing without knowing whether he was going to live or die. And yet he is able to say with conviction, I will rejoice. And um, so we, we've been challenged on this theme. I know I have been challenged on this theme. I've gotten a lot of feedback from you. I think it's, it's struck a chord. Um, I don't know if you consider yourself to be sort of a, a joyful person, but this has certainly been uh, challenging um, that, that, that aspect of my character. Uh, so Philippians 1, uh, beginning in verse 27, um, thinking about this theme of citizenship this morning, uh, we've had several in our church family that have walked through the process of U.S. citizenship during their time here as part of our local church. And uh, of course, there's a pretty rigorous process. There's a test that you have to take. Uh, many of us might not, who are naturally born citizens of the United States, might not do so well on that test. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty rigorous, and of course there's a whole series of commitments that you are making when you become a citizen of the United States. Uh, you are to obey the law, you are to pay your taxes, you are to serve on a jury when summoned, you are to register with the selective service so that you are prepared to defend your country if necessary. And of course, those requirements are different depending on the country, right? If you are a citizen in Israel, uh, there is a compulsory uh, two-year military service for every Israeli citizen. Uh, a few unique exceptions worked into their constitution, but by and large, male and female serve a two-year military uh, stint. And... Uh, you know, beyond just citizenship, formal citizenship within a country, uh, there are requirements involved for any group that you are a part of. If you join with some sort of athletic team, you are required to attend practices and to wear a, a certain uniform and to abide by a code of conduct. If you are in an orchestra, you are asked to take care of your instrument and to log a certain amount of practice time and to be present for the group practices and uh, we, we, we know what this is to have uh, the privilege of being a part of something along with the corresponding responsibility of being a part of something. And Paul developed some themes along these lines this morning that we want to look at here in this text. So Paul began uh, Philippians, so the letter here, with a, a, a greeting and a blessing, and then he talked primarily about his own um, commitment to pray for them. He talked about his sufferings and how they were serving to advance the gospel. We, we get a lot of just Paul uh, talking and relating his, his circumstances and his perspectives in the opening verses. And now, for the first time, in Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul issues a word of overt instruction, uh, an imperative command. 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So here's the, the first command that Paul 
issues, and it's about conduct. It's about lifestyle patterns, and he uses a very significant word here uh, that is loaded with significance and imagery. Uh, within this word, the real root of this word is, is the word city. And even in our English language, there are a cluster of words related to that word. Uh, there is the word city, uh, a, a domain. There is a citizen who is a member of that city. And there is citizenship, which has to do with the rights and privileges and duties of a citizen. So this is the word that Paul is using here. Matter of fact, Paul uses the same root word later in the letter uh, that is translated this way. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the concept. Now Paul is using it. In a verb form here in chapter 1, verse 27, I think the New Living Translation nails it here with this translation. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. It it, it brings out this element of, of citizenship and responsibility. So, uh, Paul is saying, live as citizens or discharge your obligations as citizens. Fulfill your responsibilities within the community to which you belong. Uh, So again, the concept of citizenship here is is brought forward in the text. And I think this is one that would have been particularly significant for these believers in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, a, a unique status, and the reason that Philippi was a Roman colony was because of what took place there. Uh, Octavian, who would actually go on to be Caesar Augustus, won one of the key battles there in the plains just outside of Philippi, uh, defeating Brutus and Cassius, a couple other big players on the Roman stage. And uh, so in honor of uh, this great victory, after Octavian became Caesar, he granted this privileged status to the city of Philippi and made it a Roman colony. By the way, this is the same Caesar Augustus who uh, initiated a census uh, throughout the known world, a census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, right? So uh, this, is, this is what was happening behind the scenes with Caesar Augustus. One commentator describes it this way, Philippi boasted of its privileged status as a Roman colony, made so by Octavian, after his decisive victory on the plains of Philippi. Hence its people thereby had Roman citizenship conferred on them, a matter in which they took considerable pride. So Paul is making a play here on their dual citizenship. Yes, they have this high exalted status as citizens of Rome, uh, but they have a higher citizenship in God's kingdom. There were citizenship requirements that went along with being a citizen of Rome, and there were certainly responsibilities that came along with being a citizen in God's kingdom. So uh, this, uh, this idea, I think, fully flows out of this text, that privilege comes with responsibility. Uh, 
We think about what has been accomplished on our behalf. There's been profession of faith about what God has done in our lives and forgiveness of sins. Uh, But with that privilege comes responsibility. Or, as I've stated uh, as the title for this message, the gospel comes with a lifestyle. It does not mean, again, that we in any way merit God's grace or have to somehow earn his favor, but it does mean that those who have been saved by God's grace should live in an appropriate or fitting way that reflects the grace of the gospel. A child doesn't do certain things to be included in the family, but a child is required to do certain things because they are a part of the family. Gordon Fee reflects on this. The phrase presupposes that the gospel had known ethical content to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel, right? Or to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Presupposes that the gospel had known ethical content and that selfish ambition, vain conceit, grumbling and disputing, for example, are not in keeping with their heavenly citizenship since they do not reflect the ethical character of the gospel. Uh, This was clearly an important issue for Paul. Uh, Paul actually gives it emphasis when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only. (laughs) This speaks of priority. Some translations say, whatever happens. (laughs) Or above all, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is the one thing that I want you to do. Paul says, many suggest that this is the singular overriding instruction of the letter. This little concise command here in verse 27 that he will proceed to unpack in the rest of the letter. We want to consider a few facets of this. Right in this immediate context, Paul gives us some... uh, some, some, some guide rails to, to help us in terms of how we think about this. So there's three facets of this uh, citizenship that uh, I want us to consider. Number one, the application. What would it look like? This is the question that's being answered here initially. What would it look like for us to live as citizens of God's kingdom? Uh, Paul's going to go on to describe this at length in chapter 2, and he's going to use the consummate example of Christ But here we get a sense for what Paul is talking about, what his expectations are for the church. And I'm going to summarize it here in three words. But let's just look at the text here. Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the first thing that Paul touches on is is commitment, standing firm in one spirit. This has the idea of continuing uh, in a current state, Uh, not being dissuaded, not being sidetracked, not shifting your allegiances. Uh, The word for standing firm appears in a few of Paul's letters. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, 
Right? So this is it. Be resolved. Don't be driven and tossed by the wind, right? By the, 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 the currents of the culture. Stand firm. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in Galatians, the, there was a temptation for some of these Jewish believers to go back to the law uh, as their, their source of security. And, and Paul says, no, you've been set free from the, 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 the obligations of the law that, that, you, that you can't keep. God has set you free. Don't, don't sub- stand firm. <laughs> don't submit yourself again to slavery. So uh, continuing in a current state. Now, this does not mean that we are stubborn and unchanging curmudgeons or Luddites, isn't that the term for people who are averse to all technology and advancement? I'm just, if, you know, if, if, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me, right? I, I don't ever need to change. Well, that's not the mindset we ought to have, but certainly is as it relates to the gospel. The gospel doesn't change. Micah referenced this whole notion of hell. The Bible talks about hell. It talks about the reality of, of our separation from God in our natural condition, in our need for salvation. We can't fudge on that just because it's unpopular, right? So we ought to, we ought to stand firm in the gospel. Do not waver, do not vacillate, do not make concessions, do not be pressed into the mold of this world, do not be driven along by the cultural currents. Stand firm. Eugene Peterson provided uh, one of the classic definitions of discipleship when he said, true discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, It's not always flashy, uh, it's not always full of mountaintop experiences. It is a certain plodding forward, a long obedience in the same direction. Paul urges them specifically to stand firm in one spirit. Some see this as a reference to a unified corporate spirit. The ESV brings that word across in small letter S, spirit. But I believe it's best to see it as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in one spirit. Paul uses this phrase in one spirit in several of his letters, uh, in Corinthians and Ephesians, and in both cases he's clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes our unity. We are asked in Ephesians to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create unity. Uh, It's already there because of the Spirit. The same Spirit that indwells you indwells me, if you're a genuine follower of Christ. And so Paul's talking here about the realm in which we experience unity. We are to stand firm. I don't have to tell you that the pressure is growing. Our faith is increasingly out of step with the secular culture. There will be an increasing temptation to capitulate 
in order to appear more educated, more inclusive, more relevant. But we must stand firm. This is one of the ways in which we live out our citizenship. We have been appointed as God's ambassadors, right? Representing his kingdom values and his kingdom truth. And I can't fudge on that. I can't change the words of the king. So we are called to stand firm. So commitment is certainly part of that. Also cooperation. Uh, With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This word for strive is where we get our word for athletics. So it has to do with exertion. It's an effort word, and the goal is not just to strive to exert ourselves, but to strive side by side or to strive together. Paul actually uses, there's a little prefix here in front of the word strive that gives us the together part, and Paul uses that prefix, that together prefix, over 16 times in the letter. Paul has a very strong idea of a corporate endeavor, a corporate mission, something that we are engaged in together. And they're to be striving with one mind, literally one soul, striving for the faith of the gospel, a common goal, a common mission. So Paul is not only calling for moral and doctrinal resolve and steadfastness, He's also calling for unity and for teamwork. You can't underestimate the importance of chemistry on a team, right? You can have a lot of talent on the roster, but if everyone is playing for themselves, disaster is sure to follow. We're involved in a team endeavor. Also, courage is part of what this looks like. Uh, he says uh, there in the beginning of, uh, beginning of verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Uh, we find that these believers in Philippi had opponents. They had enemies. Now, we don't know exactly who those opponents were, but Paul will go on to say in verse 30 that they were engaged in the same conflict that he was engaged in. So Paul was being uh, was in prison uh, under secular authorities, persecuted for his faith, and they were experiencing the same thing. And we get the sense they were experiencing external persecution from unbelieving secular culture. In any regard, these opponents were powerful or numerous, the the type of people that could have intimidated these believers. Paul says they're not to be frightened by anything that these individuals could do to them. No enemy can thwart the power of God and the advance of the gospel. One of the things that ought to mark us is courage. We are unapologetic. We are not sheepish, even in the face of great opposition. 
By the way, we're getting a pretty clear impression here, aren't we, that living as a citizen of heaven, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, will not be easy or automatic. We will have to stand fast against the prevailing cultural currents. We will have to strive together in the ministry of the gospel. And we will face significant opposition and intimidation. Citizenship in God's kingdom puts us at odds with our earthly citizenship at times. If you're living the Christian life correctly, you ought to experience dissonance tension with the values of this society. In our family, we face it in things like youth sports, right? How we're going to approach that, what place it's going to hold in our lives. Business ethics, how do you go about your work? What are the boundaries that are in place? What sets you apart? Is it simply the bottom line? Or are there other priorities and convictions that guide you when no one else is looking. Entertainment choices, music choices, what's on your playlist, sexual standards, right? All of these things, if we are living the Christian life correctly, we're going to experience tension and dissonance with the surrounding culture. If you don't experience this tension, you would do well to examine your commitment to Christ. Now let me also say here a word about tone. Paul's talking here about how these believers are to respond to their opponents, and Paul does not call on us to get angry with our opponents. He does not call on us to attack our opponents. He calls on us to stand firm in the face of opposition. So we don't go looking for trouble, uh, we don't just try to be jerks. This doesn't give us an excuse to be belligerent and inflammatory. But there should be a steadiness and a courage in the face of opposition. So, this is the application of citizenship. This is what, it at least we're getting a sense of what it looks like. Uh, we also see here in verse 28, the impact, the impact of living worthy of the gospel, the impact of living as citizens of God's kingdom. What, what difference does it make that we live as citizens of God's kingdom? Verse 28, the end of verse 28 this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So a sign is something that points beyond itself to something deeper, a deeper meaning that is communicated in this. So when you live as a citizen of God's kingdom, when you stand firm, when you strive together, when you reflect confidence in the face of threats and opposition, it symbolizes your victory, your ultimate victory. What causes a person to exude confidence when threatened by powerful people, right? You start to think, what does this person know that I don't know? You know? Well, 
Why are they, why are they acting this way? One of, the, uh, one, one of the favorite movies in our house is uh, the, the Rocky series. I don't know what we're up to, number seven or eight now, I don't know. But Rocky Balboa, and there's one, I think it's in like Rocky 3 or something, where he is, uh, Johnny could tell me whether it's in Rocky 3 or not, uh, where he starts, he, he's, he's bloodied, and he's facing Clubber Lang, and this fearsome opponent, and, and uh, he starts inviting, oh, give me, is that all you got? Give me another one, and he keeps, he keeps inviting that, and pretty soon Clubber Lang is kind of, you know, what is going on here? Why is this guy so confident? I'm, I'm beating him up. I'm winning the fight. Uh, but there's this sense when we exude courage and confidence in the face of intense opposition and threats that it is a sign. It is communicating something about our ultimate victory. Consider how Paul and Silas's singing in the prison in Philippi impacted the fellow prisoners and impacted ultimately the jailer. What is going on here? (laughs) What kind of hope do you have as you sit here languishing in this prison. So this, uh, our, our, our willingness to suffer and endure hardship for the gospel is part of our witness in the world. It's one of the ways that we arrest the attention of a godless culture. So there's an impact. There's something that's happening. There's something that's being communicated in the midst of our obedience. Finally, the encouragement, verses 29 and 30. Paul closes with kind of a declaration here that I think is really important and really answers the question, how should I think about the challenges of living as a citizen of God's kingdom? How should we think about the challenges of living as a citizen in God's kingdom? Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So verse 29 begins with a a little conjunction, for or because. So Paul's laid this all out. um, And then he says, for or because. And he gives a statement about the nature of the Christian life. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The word grant there in verse 29 uh, has to do with something that is given graciously and generously. So God has given us the privilege of believing in Christ. And God has also given us the privilege of suffering for Christ. Paul was suffering. These believers were also suffering in the same way, Paul says. And Paul just declares that suffering is a normal and expected part of the Christian life. 
We need to be reminded of this reality when we experience hardship for our faith, when we receive some slight in the workplace because of our convictions, when we are excluded or betrayed or lose a friendship because uh, we have shared the gospel, we should not be surprised or unnerved. We should not conclude that God is somehow displeased with us. Suffering is part of our calling. It is the path of the cross. The world hated Jesus, and it will hate his followers. And in this sense, suffering for Christ is a gift. It's a privilege to be able to be aligned with Christ, to share just a little bit of what he has endured, to walk the path of the cross. So privilege comes with responsibility. And again, in this text, Paul is calling us to live out the responsibilities of citizenship within his kingdom. It's easy to focus on the, the blessings of the gospel, but we ought also to think about the responsibilities of the gospel. As we close, I want to just uh, ask you a, a few, a series of questions to help you contemplate this and to think of what action steps might be for you as you respond to God's word this morning. Have you come to be a citizen in God's eternal kingdom of peace? Have you come to be a citizen? God's calling the citizens of God's kingdom to live in a certain way. So I ask you the fundamental question, are you a citizen of God's kingdom? Have you put down your weapons? Have you stopped your rebellion against God? Have you bowed the knee and submitted to his kingdom authority? I would suggest that this is what you long for even if you don't realize it. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with yourself, forgiveness of sin. This is the blessing of the gospel. The text says here that it has been generously granted that you should believe in Christ. The offer of the gospel is extended to you this morning on the authority of God's word. Have you received that offer if you become a citizen in God's eternal kingdom of peace. Secondly, if you recognize that there are citizenship responsibilities in God's kingdom, have you grappled with the fact that the gospel comes with a lifestyle? It could be that you came to Christ at a very young age and, and were simply presented with the blessing and the, the, the perks of being a Christian, that you get to go to heaven when you die, that your sins can be forgiven. But have you really wrestled with the fact that the gospel comes with a lifestyle? That we've been made citizens, but there are responsibilities of citizenship that come along with being a citizen. Number three, how are the values of the kingdom of God's kingdom reflected in your daily life? 
Is your life characterized by commitment to the truths of the gospel, cooperation with other believers, and courage in the face of opposition? At least the initial list here, these are some of the things that mark a citizen. These are some of the ways in which we walk worthy of the gospel. Are these things reflected in your life? And finally, have you clearly come to recognize that your citizenship in God's kingdom is your primary citizenship? We have multiple citizenships represented in our church family. Sometimes it's easy to allow uh, our citizenships and our loyalties uh, to eclipse our citizenship and our loyalties to God. Are you clear about that? These are people that had dual citizenship. They had the lofty privilege of being Roman citizens, which brought with it certain advantages in the ancient world. And yet Paul is telling them, that's small potatoes. (laughs) He's calling them to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Reality is sometimes we're better Americans than we are Christians. May God help us to walk worthy of the calling that we have received to live as his kingdom citizens.